Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals, thank you for coming back to another episode of the Water Woman Podcast and for coming to hang out and learn something new. Today's episode is super, super special to me. So when I was getting ready for my TED Talk, I spent hours watching TED Talks. Pretty much any ocean TED Talk out there, I have seen it. And there was one that really stuck with me because it was just such an inspiring story. And when I started Water Women Podcast, I knew she was someone I wanted to eventually have on. And so to finally get the chance to sit down and talk to her today was an absolute dream come true for me. And I cannot wait to share it with you guys because she is just insanely cool. And you know, who would have thought that you would learn a couple life lessons by rowing yourself across three different oceans, but she definitely learned some life lessons and she's here today to share them with us. So, so I cannot wait to share this episode with Roz Savage with you guys today. But before we jump in, make sure you're staying till the end of the episode because I have something super exciting to tell you guys about, and it'll be at the end of the episode. Thank you for joining me today on the Water Women podcast. I am stoked to have you on today. So I would love for you to introduce yourself with your full name and your pronouns for everyone listening. (laughs) Thank you, Jill. Um, Yeah, my name is Roz Savage. Um, And as of yesterday, uh, Dr. Rosalind Savage, actually. (sighs) No way. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, a, a long and winding road, that one, or a long and winding voyage. But um, yes, finally, finally got there. Um, and yeah, preferred pronoun, um, she, her. That is amazing. I did not know that this is news to me. Now I'm so glad we're celebrating today. That is so exciting. What did you do your doctorate on? Um. <laughs> change um it's um it's a very personal kind of doctoral program it was really a fantastic opportunity to look back on particularly the last 18 years of my life since my environmental awakening and (laughs) everything that I've attempted to do um since then to make a difference and what worked and what didn't so um I sort of weave together all sorts of different ideas from complexity theory, psychology, neuroscience, um, collapse theory, and a fairly heavy dose of Taoism in there as well to um, arrive at a a theory of change through the shift in consciousness. Cool. Yeah, because basically I'm I'm so leaping ahead here, but... um, (laughs) Um, you know, Einstein said that we can't solve problems from the level of consciousness that created them. And so with my environmental hat on, I feel like we can't solve our problems from within the level of consciousness or, in fact, the the economic model that created these problems. So I'm sorry, we've just sort of like (laughs) (laughs) straight down the rabbit hole here. (laughs) I love it. Sometimes that's the best way to start. Let's rewind a little bit. And you mentioned your environmental awakening. When was your environmental awakening and what was it? That was back in 2003. So um, I'd already uh, quit my job as a management consultant then. I'd, I'd been a consultant for 11 years. Um, quit that in 2000 and was really 
setting about reinventing myself, having been a corporate salary slave for so long. And um, my first real adventure was to um, spend several months traveling around Peru. And amongst many escapades there, um, one thing that I did was to go on a pilgrimage up into the, the mountains outside of Cusco with about 30,000 pilgrims. And the group that I was traveling with was telling me that they go up there every year for this particular festival. And every year they have to trek a bit further because their sacred place is this, this glacier and, um, and it's getting smaller. And you know, back in 2003, I hadn't really got the memo about climate change yet. And um, so my curiosity was piqued. And when I got back to the UK, um, I started researching not just climate change, but all the other terrible things that we're doing to our planet that, yeah, the planet will be absolutely fine. Um, it's got all the time in the world, literally. Yeah. Um, but it's the the humans who might be in a bit of trouble. So yes. it just felt massively important to me. And I resolved that I had to do something to try and make a difference. Absolutely. That's amazing. That's, I think that's so cool that you just decided one day, like this corporate life is not for me. This is not what I want to be spending my time doing. And then it led you down such a different path. Yeah, it, it really did. And it was, um, I suppose, a slow awakening over a period of years that, you know, I'd grown up in this sort of well-educated Western culture, um, which in many ways has been a great privilege, but also it sort of conditions you to carry on you know, on the same train track yeah. to go from university into the kind of job that university educated people do. And um, because I didn't have any better ideas of my own at that stage and that age, I'd ended up really just by default following the crowd. Yeah. And doing the like what you should do in air quotes exactly, kind of thing. Exactly. As as I think still many people do. I've Absolutely. taught at, at Yale um, most recently in 2017. And I think the, uh, it's going to make me sound so old, but you know, the, the younger generation is so much smarter. And yet at the same time, there are still a lot of them who feel this pressure, especially from the Ivy League universities, still feel the pressure to go into finance, into consulting, into law, you know, these fairly traditional Absolutely. industries. And, you know, if if that's what really makes somebody's heart sing, then great. I'm really happy for them. But <laughs> management consultancy did not, <laughs> not make my heart sing. <laughs> I can say that without any shadow of a doubt. <laughs> I love that. No, it definitely is. It definitely does feel sometimes like, you should like go to university, get a degree, pop out of university and find a job. And then you're just doing that for the rest of your life. And I grew up with both my parents working office jobs. And I remember thinking from a young age, like, I never want to do this. Like I'd go visit them at work and I was like, I, what? And both my parents thankfully were very supportive of me being like, no, I will not be doing this. And they were like, do whatever you want. Love that. But I've definitely know some people that their parents are like, no, you need to get a job. That's steady and that you can live off of and kind of thing and it's kind of nice that that 
narrative is changing a little bit and it's more so find what makes your heart sing, find that passion that you have and go from there. Yeah, to be fair to my parents, I don't think that they put any pressure on me at all. In fact, I mean, I know they were very proud when I got into Oxford University and they were probably proud that I got this, you know, what looked on paper like a very successful career. Um, but in a way, my very um, materialistic inclinations at that age were my form of rebellion because my parents were both Methodist preachers. So, oh, wow. you know, they both had this sort of vocation. Um, you know, they knew it was important to feel connected to something bigger than yourself and to feel like you were trying to make the world a better place in some way. I mean, we can argue that backwards and forwards, whether organized religion does do that um but but you know that was certainly their their intention um really good-hearted people and um so for me to basically go and sell my soul (laughs) for for a good salary was was my form of um reaction against that and it, it does sometimes make me laugh now that with my work around the environment which is increasingly veering into the spiritual (laughs) that I I find myself um you know maybe the uh apple doesn't fall so far from the tree after all and in fact there was one (laughs) speaking engagement that I was doing in a deconsecrated church that just really you know just really made me laugh it was like oh that's that's just perfect full circle moment right there exactly that is amazing so after your travels around Peru when you were kind of like I need to do something what did you decide to do how did you decide to take action here well um when I came back from Peru um I, I wrote the book about it which has actually never been published although my rowing books have been published and um this need in me was just really growing and growing that um, I, I was just so aware of the urgency of the situation, just thinking we, we've got to change course as soon as possible. But it was like I had the, the purpose, but no project. I didn't know what I could actually do. Um, I suppose I could have, you know, joined Greenpeace or Conservation International, something like that. But it it felt that there was something else like um, that would be more resonant with my particular abilities and the um, stage that I was going through at that time. So for about six months, I was just in this agony of agitation, um, sort of counting the days and just imagining the the world getting worse and worse with every passing day. Um, But I, I think it's often when we're at that point of real frustration and impatience that um, life comes along and surprises us. So I'd been asking this question of what can I do to get this message across? And um, (laughs) yeah, this crazy idea um, to row across the world's oceans and use that as my campaigning platform literally just popped into my head one day when I was on a long drive and it, it wasn't completely random like I was aware that ocean rowing was a thing yeah. um, I knew that I was looking to do something 
adventurous that would challenge me as a person as well as raise environmental awareness. I knew that I wanted to travel. I knew that I really enjoyed writing, so I wanted to do something that might be book worthy. But even so, like I could have written all of those things in my journal or in a spreadsheet or whatever, and still never in a month of Sundays have come up with this crazy idea yeah, to row amazing. across oceans. So like you, you hadn't rowed before? I had rowed before, but nothing this serious well no I'd, I'd rode seriously but in a racing shell with eight <laughs> other people you know it, oh certainly gosh. not rowing across oceans and also really being able to row is only about one percent of what it takes yeah. to row across an ocean but maybe the fact that I'd rowed before was enough to give me a false sense of confidence that this was something that maybe I could do yeah, that's amazing. I think I think it definitely was kind of that false sense of confidence. I was like, yeah, and you need that for a crazy idea like this. You need that like 30 seconds of I can do this. I've made the decision and then you're doing it. Yeah, well, it took me about a week to talk myself into it because <laughs> I don't know if you've had this experience, but like, you know, in your heart when you found the perfect project for you, but then your brain has opinions about it. <laughs> And, you know, especially it has opinions about, you know, here's a thousand reasons why why this is a really bad idea. So um, there was there was a fairly heated debate going on for uh, internal debate going on for a while. But, you know, ultimately the heart wants what the heart wants. And I really I'd come so far by that point in my life in terms of my my personal journey. Yeah. Um, I'd been doing a lot of reading and thinking and journaling and really learning to live in a much more trusting way and to trust that sort of intuitive guidance, that inner voice that, that I think we all have, despite Western civilization's best attempts to educate it out of us. <laughs> I think um, when we allow ourselves to know what we know, it's really powerful. Yeah, and yeah, I, I knew that I felt that I felt called to do this. I love that. So when you finally put that internal uh, debate to rest and the dialogue was kind of over and you decided, OK, how am I going to do this? What was the like leading up to it? Like, like, how did you find this boat? What kind of boat was it? How did you plan for things? Like, what was your leading up to it kind of like? Well, the first thing that I did, I did actually, um, I knew someone who had um, rowed across the Atlantic um, in a in a crew with his mother, which is kind of unusual. Um, so the first thing that I did after I had committed um, in my own mind and heart to doing this was I got on the phone to Dan and asked him what I should do next. And... Um, he told me that there was an ocean rowing weekend coming up, who knew, um, in Devon in the southwest of England. And as luck would have it, it was just a, a couple of weeks away. So I headed down to Devon and a pretty large percentage of the world's ocean rowers, which is a fairly small number of people, especially back then. This was 2004. Um So I met a whole load of ocean rowers and just peppered them with questions and then um, read every book by an ocean rower that I could find um, and signed up for the Atlantic Rowing Race 2005. 
um, which was just 14 months away. So, uh, which is not very long to get ready from a standing start. So um, I made a big Excel spreadsheet of all the things that I would need to do, um, the training, the courses I would need to take, uh, the people I would want to talk to, the things I would need to buy, so the money that I would need to raise, um, and really just started at the top of the list and started working my way downwards. Um, and you asked about where I got my boat from. Um, I bought it from um, a guy who had commissioned this boat, um, intending to row the Pacific, apparently, um, but had then decided not to. Um, so it had never crossed an ocean, um, but it wasn't built for me. Um, it was 23 foot long, which is fairly normal length for a rowboat. But if you've seen the races in the in the Olympics or the Oxford Cambridge boat race, they're really skinny boats. They're yeah. about a foot wide. This one was six foot wide. So oh, it was wow. more like um it was more like a little sailboat, but without the mast, obviously, because it was going to be a rowboat. Um, and it had a, a cabin at each end, um, one for sleeping, one for storage, and also a whole load of storage underneath the deck. Yeah. So it was a very, very seaworthy little boat, but it was just a shell when I bought it. I still had to get everything fitted out. And because ocean rowers tend to be completely self-sufficient, for the months and months that they're out there on the ocean. Right? There isn't a support boat following you. Wow. So you have to have everything that you need, including a toolkit, a first aid kit, a water maker, all of your food, um, basically everything that you're going to need to sustain your body and your boat for the months at sea. Wow, that is amazing. Alone for that long, like... Wow. Wow. Yeah, my my longest single voyage was five months, which was the Indian Ocean. Five months. Um, obviously, the, the Pacific is bigger, but I stopped in Hawaii and Kiribati on the way across the Pacific. Oh so, um, yeah, I, I got used to solitude. Yeah, I would say. imagine. Wow. So your first big haul, was that the Atlantic, the Atlantic Ocean? That's right. Yeah, it was the Atlantic. Oh and um, I'd unwittingly chosen the worst possible year to be on the Atlantic. <laughs> it was a really, really stormy year. Um, it was a year of hurricanes, Katrina, Rita, Wilma, all of those. I wasn't actually on the ocean when those happened, but in all, there were 28 named storms that year. Wow. So wow, you were um, That's insane. Yeah. So a lot of... Um, a lot of my equipment got broken. Um, the voyage also took much, much longer than I'd expected. And it was it was really tough. Yeah, um, I can imagine. You know, I, I'd thought that I was well prepared, but um, there are some things that no matter how much you've read books and taken courses, it's really only in the doing of them. Yeah. In fact, this is probably true of most things in life. Um, it's only when you're actually doing them that um, that you learn how to do them. But I suppose that's the real meaning of an adventure, isn't it? I mean, it if is. you knew at the start how everything was going to go, there's 
no adventure in it <laughs> and not much learning opportunity. So should we say the Atlantic was absolutely jam-packed with learning opportunities? <laughs> learning opportunities. I really like that as a way to describe things going wrong is learning opportunities. Yeah, yeah. When it really sucks, you just go, wow, what a great learning opportunity. <laughs> I'm learning so much right now through yeah. clenched teeth. <laughs> yeah, and actually I, uh, I can laugh about it now, but at the time I felt really indignant. I really was sort of, you know, looking to the heavens and going, what the hell, you know, because <laughs> I felt so called to do it that I think mm-hmm. I'd fondly imagined it was all going to be peaches and easy so and easy, smooth yeah. and, you know, this beautiful spiritual experience. I had a very romantic notion of what it was going to be like, and it just so wasn't like that at all. Oh, no. So how long did it take you to cross the Atlantic? That was 103 days. 103 days. Wow. 103 very long days, yeah. And um, I think one of the hardest aspects for me, um, like a lot of things broke, including all four of my oars before I even got halfway across. Uh, the satellite phone broke, meaning I had no communications for the last 24 days. But I think for me personally, the hardest thing was... Um, that I'd plan to use music to boost my morale and keep me energised on the way across. But my stereo broke really early on. And so I was completely alone with my own thoughts for the duration of the crossing. Terrifying. And, you know, if you really, really want to get to know the voices in your head, then I can can recommend three and a half months in a rowboat with a broken stereo. (laughs) You really get to know yourself. I would say you would be pretty familiar with that in uh, in your head voice after that. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, yeah, <laughs> learning opportunity. <laughs> Another yeah. learning opportunity. <laughs> Amazing. That would have been, wow. So the aftermath of that, like after you got back, when did you say, okay, now it's time to do the Pacific? Or did you let yourself rest a little bit? Like what happened there? Well, um, my original plan had always been to do as much around the world as I could. Um, so I was planning, to, I had planned from the outset to do the Pacific and Indian Oceans as well. And in a way that helped because even when I was really struggling on the Atlantic, I would think, well, I'm, you know, I'm learning a lot um, for future reference. Um, yeah. When I do the next ocean, I'll know not to do this or that or whatever. Um, so I did, uh, when you're rowing across oceans, you need to fit in with the seasons. So, um, after relaxing and celebrating for about three months, um, I then started preparing for the Pacific, but actually my first attempts on the Pacific ended in rather ignominious failure. Um, I got 10 days out from the coast of California and ran into a big storm and I would probably have carried on but um, there was somebody became rather too concerned about my safety. Um, I I mentioned in my blog that I was having some issues out there Mm. and so um, yeah this person called out the US Coast Guard to come and rescue me which um, 
no no disrespect to the Coast Guard, but I didn't really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously they didn't forcibly abduct me, but there was... There was a very, very long conversation over the course of several hours about whether or not I was going to accept this rescue. And it, it came down to the crunch um, towards sunset where they just said, by tomorrow, you'll be too far away from the coast for a helicopter to get to you. Um, I was having this conversation with people in a, a fixed wing plane. So um, they basically said it's now or never. And um, there's a maxim in um, adventure that it's better to be a, a live donkey than a dead lion. So, you know, in other words, you know, if things are looking a bit sketchy, um, (laughs) then it's probably better to back down. And um, so I accepted the rescue, um, which was uh, very upsetting, um, not helped by the, you know, the Internet trolls um, Mm -hmm. came out in force, um, as is their tendency when, you know, when someone's trying to do something a bit out of the ordinary. Um, so it was a fairly bruising experience. And of course, also when they airlift someone from the from the ocean, they don't airlift your boat. So yeah, I was going to say, I what in a way, to the boat? Uh, well, it was just floating around out there. So um, yeah, very long story, very short. Uh, we had a, not very much time to organise a salvage expedition because the boat was technically abandoned. And if somebody else had found it first, they could have claimed it as theirs under the law oh. of the sea. Oh my so, goodness. So yeah, the, the clock was ticking. Wow. So, and you ended up finding that and getting the boat back? Yeah, um, it had a, a beacon on board that oh, was beautiful. beaming back its GPS coordinates. I mean, otherwise it would be <laughs> impossible to find it. It would belong I mean, to the ocean then. <laughs> it would, yes. It would probably have washed up in who knows where, possibly japan or you know yes it would have been out there for a very long time but we were we were able to um to find it it was a very expensive operation um it was about twelve thousand dollars to uh to charter the the research vessel um that um but um it was actually a pretty amazing experience um some new friends jumped into help out and um you know it was it was definitely a bonding experience <laughs> yeah it's quite quite a story although not one that I would care to repeat <laughs> and I love that you had so much grit here that like after this after that heartbreaking moment of like being airlifted you were like I'm not stopping this I'm gonna continue this after you got your boat back and you still crossed the Pacific I love that tenacity there yeah, well, um, there were many reasons for that. Um, I suppose there have been many projects that I started in my life that I didn't see through to completion, but there have also been some that once I really set my heart on something, like I'm going to see it through come hell or high water. I'm just not going to back down. And in a way, all of those internet trolls who came out and were so just really vile, I just had to prove them wrong. So all of their like meanness, I just use it as extra power, you know, extra motivation. Um, I wasn't going to let them get the better of me. So, um, you know, I decided to let my actions speak louder than words. And I think this is what you have to do with the critics because there'll always be 
like the the higher you aim, the more willing people will be to tear you down. Absolutely. And the story that I told myself about the critics was that the reason that they jumped on my failure with such glee was because it justified them in never having tried anything. I love that outlook. That is wow. You know, it's easy to be the armchair critic because then you go, see, told you, you shouldn't try anything too ambitious because, look, it'll only go wrong and I'm much better sitting on my couch never yeah. trying to do anything. Wow, it does. It, that is a fantastic way to look at it because sometimes when you're putting yourself out there and trying new things, it's very like, should I be doing this? I'm a little nervous about this. And then when things go wrong, it's pretty easy to be like, that's right, I shouldn't. But to have that outlook of like people are only hating on it because they're not doing it, it justifies it for them. That's amazing. I don't know if it's true, but it's a very useful story. But Absolutely. you know what? Ha- happy people don't go around behaving like that. No. Nope. Happy people do not become internet trolls. No. So those people are projecting something about their own disappointments onto those who fail or succeed you know um so one of my favorite books is the four agreements and one of the four agreements is don't take things personally because when somebody is verbally spewing all over you it says so much more about them than it does about you absolutely that was a big learning thing for me when I was younger I took a lot of things like very personally and still some things that like I'm a very sensitive person <laughs> But it just got to the point where I was like, I don't care. I want to do this or this is what I want for myself. And it is life changing to reach that point of like, I'm doing this for me and it doesn't matter what other people think. Absolutely. It, it really is. Um, yeah, I, I'm a sensitive person too, although I've got a little bit thicker skinned <laughs> over the years. Um, And I also used to really care far too much about what people thought of me. And for me to realise that mostly they're not thinking about me at all. (laughs) They're too busy thinking about themselves. And then even if they are thinking about me, again, you know, their thoughts are going to say more about them and the lens through which they see the world than it does about me. Someone told me once they were like, you're worried about what everyone's thinking about you, but you're too worried to think about anyone else. And everyone else is feeling that too. Like everyone is so concerned about like, oh, what are they thinking of me? What like, what if I wear this jacket and no one likes it? Everyone's thinking that. Like everyone's too consumed worrying about themselves to worry about anyone else. So really, no one's looking at you, kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Or or even if they are, who Who cares? cares? Exactly. Exactly. I love that. So when you decided to go back out, you did your Pacific in three different segments. How did the segments differ from one another? And like, did you have a favorite time or was there one that was significantly harder than the other or anything like that? Um, well, uh, first to say the reason I did it in three segments was, well, first, because it's re- the Pacific is really, really big. Um, <laughs> and also because um, my main objective was to get the publicity around what I was doing so that I could get my environmental message across and you always get more publicity around the beginnings and the endings of voyages because let's face it ocean rowing is not a great spectator sport (laughs) nobody can see you you're in the middle of the ocean and a lot of it is 
Well, often not quite as monotonous as I would have hoped. It feels like there's always something going wrong. Um, <laughs> but um, I think um, after the failure in 2007, I was actually really delighted with the way that the first successful leg in 2008 went. I left from under the Golden Gate Brig Bridge in um, San Francisco and arrived into Hawaii. And between the Atlantic and the Pacific, I'd, I'd written the book, um, Rowing the Atlantic, and I'd also really done a lot of work to integrate the lessons that I'd learned on the Atlantic. Yeah. Writing the book definitely helped um, <laughs> because I knew that, um, you know, with all those beautiful learning opportunities, I knew that I really had, I'd learned a lot um, but it was almost such an intense learning curve that I was worried that I would just leave that new, wiser me out on the ocean. And I really wanted to make sure that when I got back onto dry land, that I really integrated all of that learning into who I am and the way that I show up in the world every day. Yeah. So I really put in the, the work on that. And my big personal triumph... Um, on that first stage of the Pacific was feeling that I'd managed my emotional and mental state so much better than I hey. had done um, on the Atlantic through having learned those lessons. Yeah. And I also felt that I was starting to do a better job as an environmental advocate. So you know, <laughs> on the Atlantic, I'd used practically all of my bandwidth just trying to survive without going crazy you know it was just so hard that yeah I felt like I hadn't really stepped up into that mission um of the environmental advocacy and on the Pacific partly because um over the intervening couple of years I'd, I'd built up much more of a, a network amongst ocean conservationists in the U.S. Um, including the Blue Frontier campaign um, that supported my voyages. Uh, so I, I really felt that I was hitting my stride um, yeah. with the environmental mission. Um, so that first leg was special for that reason. The second, the middle leg of the Pacific, was special for um, seeing so much more wildlife. Um, oh. You know, I was in a really remote part of the Pacific between Hawaii and Kiribati. Um, I only saw one other vessel the whole in three and a half months. Wow. Um, so I saw lots of wildlife and also just the stars at night, just amazing. Um, it was calmer going through the doldrums. So it was also really, really hot, which I didn't do very well with. But oh. yeah, for the wildlife and the just for the the natural phenomena, also the electrical storms. Yeah. Um, especially at night time, just amazing seeing like these big stacks of cumulus clouds being lit up by um, oh by the my lightning. Gosh, yeah, I can't even really begin beautiful. to imagine. Like, it's so weird being out on the water, even when you're just out for like a day or two. How insignificant you can feel because it's just so vast. So in those moments for you, I can't even imagine the the feeling you would have. Yeah, there was one particularly special um, moment. I call it my cosmic moment um, when it was, um, I couldn't really 
sleep out on the deck because it was too splashy, even when it was calm. Um, but this one particular night, it was just so stuffy in the cabin that I thought I'll just lie out on the deck for a little while. And I was just looking up at the Milky Way and just imagining like all of those stars and all of those planets. And I had this beautiful moment of feeling at the same time so tiny and insignificant, like just this tiny little boat, this little dot in the middle of the Pacific on this little planet around this little sun in this little solar system. Um, but then also feeling like part of it all. Yeah. So feeling like really tiny and completely like I was at one with the cosmos. Um, so that oh was pretty gorgeous. Gosh. That would be unreal experience. Unreal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 520 days and nights at sea and like one little cosmic moment. But, you know, I'll take it. it. I'll take it. (laughs) Totally worth it. Now for the big question. What did you take away from your journeys here into your life, into your environmental work? What were your takeaways from spending so long with yourself at sea? Um. Wow. So, I mean, that's what I've just written an entire doctoral dissertation about. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, I basically those seven years of rowing across oceans fundamentally changed me as a person, as as they would. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Surprising. Towards the end of my corporate career, um, my self-esteem was just like totally going down the drain. Um, I was in such a lost, miserable place, just not having any sense of purpose not knowing who I was and the years of rowing really helped me to gain confidence in my own abilities um, to trust myself um, to keep showing up and doing things even when they're really hard and feel almost impossible to know that if I just keep showing up and metaphorically sticking my oars in the water then eventually (laughs) I'll get to where I'm going Um, but I also, um, you know, a a lot of my dissertation is about, according to the one metric, yeah, the rowing succeeded. I survived, which is always a good start. (laughs) Baseline, yeah, absolutely. um, got recognition for it and it opened up opportunities to speak, um, about human potential, about the environment, about oceans, um, But also, in many ways, I failed (laughs) because I was so naive when I had this environmental awakening. I'd thought, oh, well, clearly people don't know about the ecological crisis because look at the way everybody's behaving. Like Mm. they just don't like they don't know. So surely if I just tell them that we have an ecological crisis, then immediately everything will change. And obviously it didn't and it couldn't because we're all so embedded in these systems of our economy and our culture and our relationships and society that change is hard. And at the moment, the, uh, the, the legal and political and commercial and economic structures don't make it easy for people to do the right thing for the environment. And so... I've had a number 
you know, I had that environmental awakening back in 2003, but I feel like I've had a whole load of subsequent awakenings where I've sort of gone, oh, now I understand a bit better how the world works. Yeah. So when I was at Yale as a World Fellow in 2012, I did a, a psychology course. Oh, my word, if I'd have done that earlier, <laughs> it was so eye-opening. Just realising all these quirks, all these cognitive biases, these weird ways that humans think and evaluate risk. And the way that we see the world is is yeah. so um, odd. <laughs> um, um, you know, that saying, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. Oh, yeah. It's such a weird concept when you realize that, like, how two people can see the same world and see it so incredibly differently because of their different upbringings and experience and stuff like that. It really just kind of shakes you a little bit. You're like, whoa, that's so weird. Exactly. Well, look at the massive political polarization in the US at the moment. Oh, yeah. Same reality, completely different perspectives. Yep. Um, so there was that <laughs> um, and then there was something of a sort of feminist awakening um, just hadn't been something that was part of my frame of reference growing up but realizing that the world is still really out of balance between not so much men and women but more than masculine and the feminine you know we yeah. live in a very masculine even dare I say patriarchal world where the more um, stereotypically feminine virtues of like nurturing and befriending and uh, collaboration, um, these are really undervalued um, in our Western culture. Um, so like a whole, uh, an economic awakening where I was like, oh, that's why change isn't happening. It's because all of the economic incentives are... <laughs> perpetuating the status quo yeah so you know just these almost like duh moments of <laughs> going oh that's why I didn't manage to create any change in the world so now I'm um taking a much more sort of systemic approach to things and looking at how we can um redesign these systems in ways that really support humanity and support the earth because I absolutely believe that we can have happier humans and a healthier planet at the same time absolutely Absolutely. it doesn't have to be a trade-off like living in an ecologically friendly way if we're doing it right will actually make us happier as well we'll be more connected with the the beauty of nature we'll be like <laughs> grounded again yeah. you know and when we look at the rates of depression and other forms of mental illness at the moment we can see that this very um consumerist materialist society is not working for anybody yeah it's not there's no there's no heart singing in that kind of mentality yeah yes so um i, I re- <laughs> See, here I am in my pulpit. I am truly my parents' daughter. But I do get really, really passionate about this. Um, Absolutely. I think it's beautiful that you took these things that you deemed like failures and managed to turn them around and be like, okay, they might have been failures in the moments, but 
learning experience and you've learned from them and changed perspective almost. You're like, okay, that didn't, that way I took didn't exactly work for what I was looking for. So how can I do that? And you've used them. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. Exactly. Well, I, I sometimes say that everything I've learned in this life, I've learned by doing it the wrong way first. So you know, yeah. um, I really don't have, um, I don't have judgment around people who um, are still sort of conforming to what our civilization, our Western society has been pitching at them so hard for the last, you know, at least 100 years. Um, but it's, I, I suppose I, I see my role now as there's, there's nothing wrong with anything. It's just, I tried it that way and now I've tried it this way. And my experience is that this way works a lot better and I'm a lot happier (laughs) and, um, maybe other people might want to try it too. You know, just try it on for size. (laughs) Not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's worth a try. What would be your like beginner advice for someone who was kind of stuck in that this is what the world is telling me I should be doing. This is what I've been giving. I want to change that. How, what do you think is the best beginner advice kind of for changing that outlook? Um, it's a great question. I think um, my first step was acknowledging that I was not happy. Um, for so long, I'd felt like I should be happy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've, I've got this career that many people give a right arm for. I've got this nice house. I've got everything that's supposed to make me happy. But, um, but I'm not. Um, but for so long, there was the, but I should be happy. So there must be something wrong with me yeah. if I'm not happy. And it was the realisation of, oh, actually, maybe my emotions, like my, maybe my soul is actually trying to tell me something here. <laughs> maybe yeah. I need to rethink this path that I'm on because I've been unhappy for years and years and years now. So uh, clearly continuing to do the same things um, while I continue to get unhappier, like this is not working. Absolutely. That reminds me of that's like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is like the definition of insanity so exactly yeah we're back to wonderful old Einstein again um (laughs) and for me that was actually really really scary because at that point in my life all of my friends all of my social life um my marriage was was based on like us all being in those kinds of professions and subscribing to that value system and it was really really hard to step out of that and especially having been successful in air quotes um for so much of my life been really good at academic work good at passing exams doing job interviews I'd been very successful according to this value system that was not mine and so to opt out of that and risk not looking successful Mm. was really threatening to my ego in a big way um and I I was terrified to take that leap but then when I did 
when I did burst that bubble, I discovered that outside of the bubble was where all the cool kids were hanging out. Yes. <laughs> it's like um, it's like that hero's journey. You know, when you cross the threshold into the new world, it's when all the all the allies and mentors show up. And I will say a lot of amazing new people showed up in my life around that time. And that sort of gave me the message like, oh, I must be doing something right here because this is feeling good oh, and that. I'm feeling happier. And then I, I also um, want to make it really clear that I didn't go straight from my corporate career into the rowing. There was this stage of trying out various other careers like photography, organic baker, uh, coffee shop owner, um, Peru, uh, writing a book. Um, tried on all of these things and none of them were quite what I was looking for, but they all gave me really valuable information about coming back to what makes your heart sing. Oh, and God. so... I think often we worry too much about our CV um, and what our resume is going to look like if we've got like a few months doing this and a few months doing that, mm -hmm. that we might look like someone who doesn't know where they're going. You know what? There are times it's okay to not know where you're going. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's now 21 years since I had a salaried job. And there have definitely been some wobbly moments financially because I'm I'm not from a wealthy family and I didn't have loads in savings when I left my old life. And um, there have definitely been some, you know, I've been tested yeah. along the way. I do think financial insecurity can test the, the strongest resolve. But um, somehow I'm still here and, you know, still paying the rent and paying the food bills and it's all worked out and I do think that fortune favours the bold and if anybody listening to this decides to quit their job um you know don't sue me but um <laughs> but so far so good I love it I hope everyone listening is half as inspired by you as I am because it's truly like listening to your story and listening to what you've learned I feel like I've lived it with you at this point like I'm I'm ready to go grow across the ocean now but, wow. Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate. I feel um, I, I feel very lucky that when I arrived at that fork in the road 21 years ago that um, that I chose the, the road or the ocean less traveled. It's, I love that. Um, life has definitely been very kind to me. I love that. Now, I feel like we could talk forever. But if people wanted to find out more about you, learn more about you, where can they find you on the internet? Um, I have a website um, at rozsavage.com. That's R-O-Z, Savage. Um, where until very recently, I was blogging every week. Um, but the last couple of months, been really busy <laughs> with a project with a complimentary currency. But I will be getting back to it. Um, and there are also links there to my books and to a half hour documentary about my adventure on the Atlantic. So yeah, everything Amazing. about me is basically a rossavage.com. And definitely check it out because it is so cool. And just stalking your website the other night while I was prepping for this, I learned so much more about you. And again, was just like, this woman, I, I want to be her. So it's amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's such sweet thing to say. I don't, I don't think you would want to be me because you've got your own unique gifts to bring. And, you know, that's what the world needs from us all right now, I believe, Absolutely. is for us all to, you know, to be podcasting or writing or evangelising for complementary currencies or <laughs> whatever it is. We've all got something really unique and special to bring. And if the world tries to force us into a box or homogenize us into conformity then yeah it's time to break free I love that at the very least you've inspired me to do that so I will be taking that with me from now on and Roz thank you for joining me today on the podcast it was absolutely phenomenal to get to talk to you and to pick your brain and amazing thank you it's been a real pleasure Jill thank you so much for your gorgeous questions and your beautiful energy it's been really lovely to connect Thank you guys so much for sticking around and listening to this episode. I hope you are all at least half as inspired as I was after talking to Roz because she is so amazing and I learned so much and just had such a great conversation with her that I'm so happy to share it with you guys. Now, what I am so excited to tell you about is I've kind of mentioned this before, but Water Women is coming out with our line of merch soon. So we're coming out with a line of crew necks and t-shirts with a couple different designs on them. And I cannot wait to share them with you guys. This is something I'm super passionate about, super, super excited about. And I wanted to get everything just right. So keep an eye out for that. And if you made it all the way through this episode, thank you so much for sticking around with me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.